Okay, let's turn, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. It's my very sad duty to inform all of you of the loss of Maxwell, otherwise known as Max Pahoney, this past Christmas. He's with our Lord now, face to face, of course, where there's no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain. And our constant intercession and our consolation goes to the family, of course, and to those who are teachers and friends and praying for the miracle of consolation from God the Father, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort. And there is going to be a memorial service for Max on Friday. And the information is at the information table. I hope you'll all possibly consider the blueness of the wound cleanses away grief and misery. That that means that the body of Christ responds to the wound sometimes. And coming to that place can be comforting and healing. So... Please keep that in mind, but most of all, interceding for Max's parents, Miles and Nancy, and his family, his sisters. So let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. Father, only your remarkable, matchless grace can address the sometimes unimaginable suffering that your people are called to go through. And we pray for Miles and Nancy especially and for for Madison and Jennifer and the rest of the family, Father, that you will bring the miracle of consolation through the Word, through the Spirit, and through the love of God being poured out in hearts. We Know that you're in control of all situations and nothing is outside of the scope of your grace and mercy. For that we're grateful. And we pray that you'll open the eyes of our understanding now. That we may continue in your plan, in your purpose, in your will. Most of all in your grace and in the kindness you've shown us in Christ Jesus. We ask this and give you thanks in his name. Amen. Second Corinthians, as I mentioned, we'll also be going to Jeremiah sometime in our trek tonight, Jeremiah 1, and maybe Galatians. There will be no service tomorrow night, but there will be the regular schedule next week, and that includes next Thursday, the 5th of January, the Phil Henry Power Gospel will be here, and I hope you'll, as many as possible, can attend that. It's a good time and you can it's a good time to bring friends that maybe don't know the lord yet too because phil kind of gets right to the heart of the matter sometimes and uh, appreciate his ministry okay i'm going to do a teaching tonight that has to do with traveling through four gears and on the fourth gear i'm going to give you seven observations my only consolation in life is the word and the fellowship that i have with the Father, and with you all. And so let's get to it. The first gear is something of a personal nature because I'm very personally related to the message that I'm preaching lately, which is all-encompassing. 
having belonged at one time to a controversial Christian affiliation in the 70s and 80s, which was rumored to believe in new revelations, I was asked a question after being in that affiliation. I was asked a question by a pastor on my ordination board in Texas in 1991. And him, knowing my history, this, this one of the pastors said, best to my recollection, he said, do you believe that God is giving new revelations today? And apparently he knew the rumors of the group I was with before. My answer was, in effect, and to the best of my recollection, I basically said, no, I don't believe God is giving new revelations, but he is granting fresh illuminations on the revelation he gave, especially to Paul. He is granting fresh illuminations, and we would call them insights on the revelation or the revelations of the Bible. And I still hold to that principle, and I held to that principle even when I was in a group that was rumored not to believe that. I always believed that there are no new divine disclosures of some greater truth that's in the New Testament, but there is an illumination. And I believe that every generation of church history should be attentive to what the Spirit is teaching the churches because it is exactly what God wants to do. He desires to give insight, enlightenment, illumination on the revelation that God gave, especially to Paul, as our series now is called Better Call Paul. Tonight, it's Paul's strategy in Romans. I want this to be eminently clear before we progress. What Paul's strategy was in Romans, his final church epistle. So, in first gear, I wanted to remind you of this. There are illuminations fresh on the revelations of the Bible. I still hold to that principle. And that God is giving illumination on the revelations which he gave to his prophets and apostles today is my firm and total conviction. Most pointedly, he's giving a fresh illumination of the revelation of Jesus Christ by which the gospel came to the apostle Paul. It came to him by a revelation. Thanks primarily to the work, as I want to give credit where it's due when I'm studying, and the work done by Douglas A. Campbell, which he roots his work in a lot of other scholars and research through the 20th century. Thanks to his work mainly, though, in the deliverance of God, the gospel that Paul preached is being illuminated and elucidated apart from its traditional contractual construal. It's an interpretation that terribly, unfortunately, has been distorted by preconceptions of the zeitgeist, which the Germans called the spirit of the age, the spirit of this age, especially as that spirit has engulfed Western culture in general with its contractual rather than covenantal understanding. Second gear, shifting. Very helpful is something I read in Florida, not this last time, but last spring. Always a fruitful time to study. And I make sure to shut the shades and stay inside when I read, because if I see the sun, I'm going to wander toward the beach. So this is inside, shades drawn. 
I read something by Robert Duran, who was a student of Bernard Lonergan. And Robert Duran, and this is so providential that I stopped kind of reading shortly after this in his book called, it's the hardest book I've ever read, I think, Theology and the Dialectic of History. But I want you to be very clear on this, because this is going to be the most important thing I've taught this series. Robert Duran distinguishes the tensions in two kinds of dialectic. There's a tension in a dialectic. There's a position and a counterposition. One kind of dialectic or one kind of tension is what he calls a tension of opposites that is to be preserved in creative equilibrium. And another tension of opposites whose only authentic resolution is through the choice of one pole and rejection of another. In other words, there is, as I said, he calls the first a dialectic of contraries. There, there can be a, a point and a counterpoint, but a creative tension in, that maintains an equilibrium between the two. And some people think that's what's in Romans, that there's, there's a creative tension between some of the things Paul says and some other things Paul says, which has allowed some scholars to say Paul was confused. But what we have in Romans is the other kind of tension. There's a tension between two polar opposites by which you are compelled to choose one and reject the other. This isn't a creative equilibrium between two poles. This is the demand to reject one and accept the other. That's what we have in Romans. The tension that is to be preserved, Robert Duran says, he calls a dialectic of contraries, whereas the tension to be resolved by choice between the alternatives, he calls a dialectic of contradictories. Again, extremely providential because this is how it was enlightened to me. Through that concept, I saw that what we have in Paul's epistle to the Romans is a dialectic in which the obvious tension between the gospel of this anonymous teacher. Now, this word, the teacher, came from a study by Lewis Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, who studied Galatians and identified this teacher. He's easily identified there. Paul says, whoever it is that's troubling you, he's speaking of a teacher with another gospel. And this title, The Teacher, was taken up by Campbell. And until I find a better descriptive term for this guy, we'll still call him The Teacher. And he has a gospel, this anonymous teacher, which is entirely opposite to the gospel of Paul, which is the gospel of God or the good news of God about his son, as Paul defines it himself in Romans 1, 2. So it's a choice between the alternatives. There's no creative tension. There's no equilibrium between those who strive in goodness and do good and continue in good will be given eternal life. And the opposite pole, which says that we are delivered graciously by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There is no creative tension. Those that think Paul is seeing a, an equilibrium between those two things really are attributing to Paul a deep, profound incoherence and confusion. The reason is that's not his strategy. 
And I want to explain to you, I think he wrote what his strategy was going to be in Romans when he wrote 2 Corinthians, which he wrote about a year or so before he wrote Romans. I think he had the strategy in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians. And we're going to turn to there in a moment. But we're still in second gear. So in Romans chapters 1 through 8 especially, we have a dialectic of contradictories. Paul's intent therein is not to preserve a tension of creative equilibrium between these two Gospels. His intention is to annihilate this other Gospel, which in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, is not a Gospel at all. It doesn't deserve the title euangelion, because euangelion means a proclamation of good news. It doesn't deserve it. So there is no creative equilibrium. There is no pleasing both sides of the aisle kind of a thing in this. There is the total annihilation. As Amos 2.9 puts it, destroyed the root from below and the fruit from above. No mercy. No mercy on a merciless gospel is what I would say. No mercy on a merciless gospel. And when you think of that, no mercy on a merciless gospel, you start to get an idea of God's wrath, what it's directed toward. It's directed toward a hostility, not toward people, but toward a hostility to grace and mercy. So Paul's intention is to annihilate this other gospel, which has been plaguing him like a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, since the beginning of his ministry. As we see in Galatians, as we see in Philippians chapter 3, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as we see in Romans. So it's decidedly not a proclamation of good news that Paul is demolishing. Third gear, his third gear, this is essentially outlining a strategy in 2 Corinthians, which Paul deploys effectively in Romans. And I'm speaking of 2 Corinthians 10, 3. From the Greek text, I have this translation for your edification. 10, 3. For although we walk about or walk around, have our conduct and living, In the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Paul recognizes the fragility of our humanity in the flesh in this age, but he says the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or fragile. On the contrary, he uses the strong word Allah in the Greek. On the contrary, they are powerful through God for the destruction of fortresses, for the takedown of rationalism, which is what the gospel of the teacher is. Reasonings is what's used here. The gospel of the teacher is rationalistic, and it imputes a kind of ability to man to discern God in creation And there is something we discern in creation, but he sees this, this other teacher sees this as a kind of a deserving that God pulls you along. And we really have to rethink some of this stuff because it's it's stuff that because we don't recognize the dialectic of contradictories, we're almost forced to say, well, Paul must have thought that way. And but because we believe the word of God is infallible, we're not going to charge Paul the apostle with 
incoherence. And so we, with the lack of this knowledge that we have now, we kind of had to, I don't know what, be confused with Paul, I guess. And then be offended that people said he was confused. And of course he wasn't confused. Paul was the most coherent thinker, the most coherent writer, the most coherent speaker and communicator of any person in any literature that I've ever read. He's very clear. And if you understand that what he's doing is a dialectic of contradictories here, you're going to be helped out immensely. Because 2017 is the year of the breakout. It's the year of the gospel breaking out of its traditional construal and its chains and the chains that bound it. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen here, but it'll happen elsewhere also. That's what I'm aiming at. But notice what he says. The takedown of arguments, we might say, rationalistic arguments, like the gospel of the teacher. And every lofty thing or every lofty argument, metaphorically speaking, raised up in opposition against the knowledge of God and subduing every purpose to obedience to Christ. That's Paul's strategy in Romans. Taking down, destroying, demolishing fortresses, this false gospel. The takedown of reasonings, false reasonings. And every lofty thing or argument raised up in opposition against the knowledge of God. In other words, this teacher's gospel is an affront, an assault on the true knowledge of God, whose will is to show mercy to all, on the true nature of God. It puts forth the justice of God as the primary attribute of God, and that justice is retributive. And I've been asked questions about this, and I'm going to address the questions. I got three. I got a triangulation of questions, Jeff, last week, and right after Christmas message. And I'm going to triangulate the three mess- the three questions I got. And I do have answers, but it's going to take time. Give me some time. I'm applying my heart to wisdom. Teach us to number our days, said Moses in his Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. We only got so much time here on this earth. Even if you live till 100, still a short time on this earth. And we apply our hearts to wisdom. So I'm applying my heart to the answers to those questions. And because I'm not wise in myself, I have to study to answer. The righteous man, the scripture says, or the man that is wise, studies to answer. He doesn't just give an answer off the top of his head. He studies to answer. And I'm studying to answer. Because I really, really, really want to be the righteous man. Now, notice what the last phrase says. And subduing every purpose to the obedience of Christ. What he has here is Paul's intent is to make the idolatrous gospel of human deserving bow to the Christocentric gospel, the gospel of Christ. The gospel that's all about Jesus. So here's fourth gear. In fourth gear, now that we're coasting, we're rolling, we're not coasting, I'm still stepping on the gas. 
There's six, I, I would say like the Proverbs said, there's seven, no eight. No, there's three, no, there's four. I'm saying there's seven, maybe eight things that I want to observe. First, Paul's strategy, like Jeremiah's, is first destructive and then constructive. You see this in Romans 5, 8, 5 through 8. Romans chapters 5 through 8, that's where Paul builds and plants and reveals the unchained gospel. That gospel is anticipated in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It is stated in a thesis statement in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It is anticipated in an explanatory way in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And it is in earnest revealing the breakout of the gospel in Romans 4, 25 through 839. Then the primary question, what about unbelieving Israel? What about them? And Paul answers that question, culminating in his great doxology that God shut up everybody, nations, pagans, and Jews in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Romans eleven thirty-two. But just turn with me for a second to Jeremiah 1. Because Paul, in fact, alludes to Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah was made a prophet to the nations. He was called to be a prophet to the nations. Paul was called to be the apostle to the nations. His ministry was scandalous because it was directed toward pagans. And that's a good word. Gentiles is okay. Nations is okay. But the understanding is pagan peoples. In Jeremiah 1.5, and just, just for clarity, turn to Galatians 1 at the same time. See if you can do that. See, if you're looking at your iPod, iPad, whatever the hell they call those things, you're at a disadvantage now because you've got to go to two different places. If you have the old-fashioned book, you can just go to both places. Galatians chapter 1. First, I'll read Jeremiah 1. I chose you. Yahweh speaks to Jeremiah. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul actually alludes to this calling and alludes to Jeremiah's call in Galatians 1.15. Paul says, but when God, who set me apart, from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. That's how it should read. It says, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased. And let me tell you something, individual personal regeneration happens when God is pleased to make it happen for you and no other time. Not when you're pleased, you're going to decide to commit your life to Jesus or surrender your life to God or give the steering wheel over, take the wheel, Jesus, take the wheel. That's probably a good thing to do is to give control to the Lord, but that's after. That's an after thing. That's when the afterburners are on. Notice what he says, when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. 
Now, the word is NMY in the Greek. It looks like in me. So you want to make a, and you can say, you can make a case for in me. I have before. But I think we also have a case for to me, because here it's the dative has the sense of in my case. He re, to reveal his son in my case, or in other words, to me. In order to proclaim him to the nations. You see, just like Jeremiah, the womb is mentioned. God's call is mentioned. The proclamation to the nations is mentioned or the pagans. So, Paul, let me put the whole thing to you this way. Galatians 1.15. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, verse 16. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Paul didn't run to the apostles and say, this really happened to me. You think it's a real experience? Because they would have maybe doubted it. So on top of this, Jesus plainly stated something about Paul's ministry that came true in Paul's ministry. And that is... In Matthew 15, 13, all that my father did not plant will be plucked up. The gospel of this teacher was not planted by God. Paul comes to pluck it up. And that's why if you look at Jeremiah 1, 10, you have the calling or the strategy that God gave for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the strategy was in 1, 10, to root up, pluck up, pull down, and destroy. That's what he says. Uproot, tear down, destroy, and demolish. So what's Paul's aim? To root up, pluck up, destroy, and demolish the teacher's false gospel. While at the same time, or in the same epistle, he builds and plants the gospel of God about his son, the unchained gospel. So we have already seen that the strategy in action by discovering the radical, irreconcilable tension. We have a radical, irreconcilable tension. You choose one of the two poles. You choose a rationalistic, humanistic, anthropocentric, contractual gospel, or you choose a Christocentric, God-initiated, liberative, transformative gospel of all about Jesus Christ. And there's no creative tension in between. And because people try to keep the creative equilibrium between these two gospels, they live a mixed kind of Christian life with no real ethical efficacy, no real eschatological assurance or security, and no real consistency of faith, hope, and love. And that's why there has to be a breakout, because God is also directing his attention toward the uprooting of the Adamic ontology, which we call the flesh in the negative sense, the flesh. If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, it's life and peace. And so the only way to really get into the ethical efficacy of a truly spiritual life is to understand this gospel to start with. And the tragedy and crisis of our time is that it is not really grasped or distinguished until recently. So 
Do you believe there are new revelations? No, I don't. But I believe there are new illuminations on the revelation given to Paul. And that revelation given to Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has been radically distorted by people that are trying to make peace between the teacher and Paul. There is no peace between teacher and Paul. Paul's talking about destroying every fortress, every high thing, taking down every argument. And he does so by a rhetorical strategy and bringing every thought and every purpose to the obedience of Christ. And so we have in Jeremiah 1.10, you are going to uproot and tear down, destroy and demolish. And that's exactly the strategy Paul uses in Romans. Paul is called an apostle to the nations in Romans 11.13 and Galatians 2.8, just as Jeremiah was a prophet to the nations. And so this is a divine strategy, not Paul's, but a divine strategy which Yahweh assigned to both the prophet Jeremiah, whose people were worshiping the god Molech and other false gods in groves that were found in high places, in Jeremiah 7.31 and many other places. Look up high places. The high places were what Paul was referring to in a secondary metaphor here, destroying every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, this other gospel is an idol. This other gospel is idolatrous. Paul, therefore, is functioning in what we would call a true iconoclasm, destruction of idols. He's like a prophet destroying idols. And the idol is a gospel of human deserving, of epistemological capability on the part of man to figure God out little by little. And so this is God's strategy. In Romans as well as in Galatians, though much more thoroughly in Romans, Paul uproots and tears down, he destroys and demolishes the teacher's false gospel. Well, then he builds and plants the gospel of God about his son. He begins to plant in Romans 1, 2 through 4. He continues to plant with a thesis statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation to both Jew and Greek who has faith. That is, the faithfulness that we participate in gives us a knowledge of the gospel as being the power of salvation. For us, you say, when does somebody get saved or when does someone get regenerated when God wills it, when he's pleased, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, it was January. It was in the dead of winter. It was the pallor of the midwinter in ups, upper Vermont in the 23rd of January on a Sunday in 1972. That's when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And it was so startling to me that I'm only realizing it 45 years later, what the impact of what it means that Jesus Christ sums up all reality in himself. Cause not everybody gets the question in their soul. Like I put it like reality is with a big question mark, because I literally was at a place where my soul was seeming to exit. And I didn't know what reality was. The answer was Jesus. 
And I'm only realizing now that reality is Jesus, which overtook me. And then the second thing that he did that day for me is say, have a deep and abiding faith. After saving, elevating, lifting me out of that mess, he said, now have faith. When do we therefore receive regeneration? When we believe the creed that the church teaches, when we read the dogma? No, when God pleases. Eventually, he will please to reveal his son to everyone. But if he has been pleased to reveal him to you, you are part of a fortunate, blessed, graced out community called the church, the body of Christ. And we should be grateful. Gratitude probably is the first mark or marker of this higher integration of human living because you're, you're just simply grateful. He comes upon 10 lepers. He cleanses them all. One comes back and is thankful. And Jesus says, where are the nine? Of course, as you know, they're all cleansed, but one bears the marker of a higher integration of human living, which is gratitude without getting bogged down there however let's continue we've already seen the strategy in action and shown the radical irreconcilable tension between the teachers assertions in Romans 2 7 and 8 and Paul's rhetorical rebuttal in Romans 3 10 to 12 in other words in Romans 3 10 to 12 Paul demolishes uproots pulls down and destroys The teacher's two statements, let me just give them to you, just because this to me is a hot point. This is a point of application. The teacher says this, Romans 2, 7 and 8, eternal life to those who by doggedly doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and retributive judgment to the self-seeking and to those who disobey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. That's the teacher. Show me the creative equilibrium between that and what Paul says in Romans 3:10 to 12. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, referring back to the teachers, they look up into the sky and they understand God. He said, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Well, those who seek receive eternal life. Paul says there's a problem with that. There's no one who seeks God. Quoting from the Psalms, verse 12, all 12, all have turned away at the same time. And we've explained that when Adam turned away, becoming depraved, that means having radical ethical incapacity. There is no one who does good. There is not even a single one. There is no creative equilibrium between those two gospels there's only you accept the one and destroy the other and we accept paul's and destroy the other people are so afraid to look at this romans in this way because they think you're destroying the word when all you're doing is magnifying the word beyond what it's ever been magnified by any traditional construal by showing the glory of the gospel of the christ against its opposite 
There's another speech and character that we'll find in Romans in 7, 5 to 25, where Paul doesn't speak for himself, but he speaks for someone who is finding out the great contradiction of trying to do good while evil is still present with you and there's no good in your flesh, which is Adamic ontology. So if Adamic ontology has no good that we can offer God, there's only one policy for it, and that's mortification, crucifixion, pluck down, pull down, take down, destroy, or as we say, put off the old man. Like an old suit of clothes and put on the new man. So the first observation in fourth gear, we're stepping on the gas still. We're on one of those highways with no speed limit. Second, in this light, perhaps we should rethink the notion that God recognizes positive signals. As if he looks around in the human race and sees antenna and some go up and they're positive. And God says, that one's positive. Let me, I'm obligated to give the gospel to him or to her. And that, so still there's a little something there. It comes from me. It's a little, you know, I'm, my, my antenna's up and I'm giving positive signals, which means I'm seeking God somehow. So God recognizes. Now, again, I'm not trying to mock that idea, but we got to rethink it. Paul wasn't sending up positive signals. He was breathing out how he can murder every one of these damn Christians. Kill them all. Kill them all. Well, there's a positive signal. No, there isn't. There ain't no positive. He called me by his grace. When God was pleased to reveal his son in me, I was at the height of the breathing out, which means that the mainspring of my being and the main motivator of my actions was murder. Breathing out slaughtering, says the old King James. When I first read it, I read that, and I said, that's pretty dramatic so in other words if you're going to use that sending up positive volitional signals meaning god kind of rewards you with faith or gives you faith then because you sent up positive signals the only thing i sent up to god was despair the only thing paul sends up is murder he wasn't in despair he thought he was doing exactly the right thing it's funny, but you think about people who think they're doing God's service by killing other people. Oh, wait a minute. That's happening everywhere today. But we live in a nation where they're afraid to address it, afraid to name it, while at the same time they're joining the jackals against Israel. Not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. Because God does have a kind of judgment, and he directs it toward obstacles to this wonderful gospel just like he directed it toward jerusalem which was became the center of the obstacle to that gospel so then in this light we have to rethink the notion that god recognizes positive signals sent up from the free will of certain unregenerate people and on the basis of these signals, he becomes obligated to give them the gospel. On the other, what I see instead in the unchained gospel is a God of total freedom. Not obligation to his own, not obligation to positive signals. We should consider rather that God in his total freedom elected his own son and included in his son the entirety of the undeserving human race. Third, 
We're in fourth gear. I'm still stepping on the gas. I'm not going to stop stepping on the gas through 2017. You're getting the preview of the New Year's Day message. It's the breakout. The year of going beyond becomes the year of the breakout. On another level, it's called the year of the soft target, in which we, a soft target is a target that's easy to demolish. The cowardly Islamic fascism of our times chooses soft targets because they're not true warriors. But what I'm making a soft target out of is a false teacher's gospel. It's a hard target. You can't find it. But when you find it, it becomes a soft target and you blow it the hell out of the water because it's infected the thinking of Western culture, the thinking of the Western theology, and the thinking of the Western church And it has resulted in an American Pelagianism. And Pelagius was the guy that says we cooperate with God in our salvation in the sense that we are saved by works in some way. So we should note that Paul is thirdly alluding to an iconoclastic function, the pulling down of high things that thrust themselves forward in arrogant boasting against the knowledge of God. It's kind of like the new stupid, sissified way that people get in fights. They go up and bump each other in the chest like, oh, wow. It's like a vaunting. A a young man maybe in his teenage years comes against his father and he does one of those, you know, up against, you know, I'm going to, and the father says, you know what? I'll always be able to take you. So come ahead, you know. My son one time brought a can to me and said, can you open this jar and I said, You're, he's a very strong guy, you know. I've only heard about him getting mad once, and he body slammed some guy. But um, I said, Jared, you're strong. And he says, yeah, but you got old man strength, which is kind of a backhanded compliment. And, of course, then you got to either break that top of that jar or be humiliated for the rest of your life, obviously. Old man strength. You know, then you kind of say, well, yeah, I remember that. You know, I can always, I can always take you. (laughs) Wouldn't try. But here we have the teacher's gospel is an idolatrous one. So what we'll do in 2017 is hopefully make it a soft target. And there's only one thing to do with an idol. Smash it. Fourth, all of this accords with a rhetorical strategy employed by Paul in Romans against the teacher, as he's called by Campbell, by Lou Martin at first, in reference to a bothersome teacher in Galatians. And as my brother in grace asked, Phil Henry asked, is the, could this teacher be the thorn in the flesh of Paul? And I think quite Naturally, it may be, because Paul said, God, he gave to me a thorn in the flesh, an angelos of satana, a messenger of Satan, and he didn't take it out. And I think he left that messenger of Satan in Paul's wake everywhere Paul went, so that by Romans, that teacher becomes the ultimate soft target and Paul destroys and dismantles his gospel. We've missed that whole thing about what Romans was for. 
It's the unchained gospel as opposed to the false one. So all of this, the fourth observation and fourth gear, a rhetorical strategy employed by Paul in Romans against this teacher. Fifth, once we recognize this divine strategy in Romans, we're armed with a powerful interpretive tool. Once we recognize this rhetorical strategy in Romans, we are armed with a powerful interpretive tool. Of the eight theological functional specialties, probably the one that will stand out the most, and there's nine according to Duran, he added horizons to the eight. I think the one that will stand out most in the coming year will be interpretation. Because once we recognize the divine strategy, all that my father hasn't planted will be plucked up. Once we understand this divine strategy in Romans, we're armed with a powerful interpretive tool. Sixth observation in fourth gear, not letting up on the gas. It should be noted that the aim of this strategy is to bring every purpose into subjection to Christ. Now, I believe that this is going to bring many things in our own lives to subjection to Christ. The things that plague us, the things that torment us, the things that bother us, the things that disturb us, the things that shake us, the things that make us fear are all things that have not been brought into subjection to Christ. So I think there's going to be an immense practical impact of this. We are feeling, I'm feeling as a communicator, I'm feeling the displeasure of principalities and powers against this gospel. And that's not a problem for me because that's something that's always there. But that's because obviously there are powers, including sin itself, including death itself, including Satan's forces themselves that don't want everything to be brought into subjection to Christ. And the best thing they've got going for them is an idolatrous gospel of human deserving. Again, I was asked, what about the, uh, the angelic conflict? What about Satan saying, I will ascend and be like the Most High? This gospel, which is a message from Satan, is exactly that. It is man deserving to ascend to be like God. And the objection which we once saw against the justice of God, which would occasion an appeal trial, which is a good, listen carefully, a good analogy. But we now have to see that the objection that Lucifer made to the Most High God was not an objection to his justice, but to his love, his unconditional, his unrestricted love. How can you love all these creatures when you should love me special? And so a lot of the things that pertain to what we call the angelic conflict have to, there's a shift because when you shift from the primary essence of God being love from a primary view that was his justice, you shift from a God of retributive justice and God, does you say, does, has God ever acted in judgment in history like in the Exodus? Yes, of course he has. What was he directing his wrath toward? 
He was directing his wrath toward an enslaving people and releasing and liberating an enslaved people. Does this mean that those who were buried in the Red Sea are gone to hell? No, it means that God is pleased to reveal his son to them post-resurrection. That's another time. So we should, the sixth thing, and I'm almost ready to close, it should be noted that the aim of this strategy is to bring every purpose into subjection to Christ. The aim, as the French would say in my French word of day calendar, le but, L-E-B-U-T, pronounced le but, the aim, the goal, therefore, is the proclamation of a Christocentric gospel where terms like pistis Christu do not refer to an individual's personal faith in Christ, but to Christ's own personal faithfulness. The contrast then in this gospel isn't between the works of the law and personal faith, but the works of the law versus the faithfulness of Christ. It's a Torah of faithfulness. Paul gets into it again in Romans 3 with this other teacher And the other teacher says, well, then where is boasting? Because we got to boast somewhere. And Paul says, well, as far as soteriology, it's excluded. Boasting is excluded. Paul later says when he hits the ground with and starts running with Romans and hits the gas with Romans, he says, here's boasting. We boast in our tribulations. We boast in our tribulations because we stand in this grace. We boast in grace. We don't boast in works. So the teacher says, well, then why is boasting excluded? Is it excluded based on, in Rome, you read it in Romans 3.30, around 3.29 and 30, or even 27 it starts, right after 26. He says, is, how is it excluded? By a law of works or a Torah of works? And Paul says, no, of course not, but by a Torah of faithfulness. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ rules out human boasting. That's why by grace have you been saved through faithfulness of Messiah. It's the gift of God, lest anyone would uh, boast. There's no soteriological boasting on the part of man. So again, it's a matter of the faithfulness of Christ. Paul said that to Peter. He said, you and I, we both know this. We're not pagans. We're not goyim. We are Israelites, and we know that we can't be saved by the works of the law, but by the what? The faithfulness of Messiah. And we've always believed this, Peter. We believe this. And Peter said, yeah, we do believe this. In Acts 15, 11, he says, we believe that we shall be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus, just like they will, the Gentiles. There's no problem. It's a matter of faithfulness of Jesus Christ versus the works of the law, not the works of the law versus faith. And that's where Western contractualism comes in, where God requires faith from us in order to be saved. Is that the case? No, it is not the case. And the gospel is going to break out of that little glass vase or vase, as we used to say it. Seventh. This all accords in turn with what Paul calls the gospel of God, which is all about his son. This accords in turn 
with what Paul calls the gospel of God in Romans 1-2, which is all about his son, born as a seed of David, born as the descendant of David according to the flesh, and therefore the kingly Messiah, and declared to be the son of God, the divine son of God, with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification in Romans 1-4. I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for therein the righteous act of God the king is revealed the righteous rescuing act of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness for my righteous one says Habakkuk 2 4 God says my righteous one Christ shall live resurrection because of his faithfulness his faithful obedience to the extent of death why am I saved Because I believed? No, because Christ was faithful to the extent of death. Who was elect? The Bible says he's the elect one. Behold my elect one. Who's elect? Christ. Well, if in Christ all are going to be made alive, then all must be elected in Christ. This is a sweeping divine rescue mission that sweeps the whole human race in. You say, well, when then do people get saved? When you persuade them that they need to be saved? When you persuade them that they're a sinner from the old construal of Romans through the Romans road? When is a person actually regenerated and comes to the knowledge of Christ? I'll tell you when. When God is pleased to reveal his son to them. You say, then, do you think it'll happen to the whole human race before they die? No, but I do think this, if I recall, Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him, even those who impaled him. And to see him is to have God reveal to you his son. God will be pleased to reveal his son to countless millions of people, in bodily resurrection, who did not receive that before. We could say this. Blessed are you if he has revealed this to you while you still walk around in bodies of fragile, mortal flesh. Blessed are you. If you really knew the privilege you'd have, it'd be the reason why you'd come to church. Because the space that you inhabit is rendered sacred. There's no safe space in this whole world. There isn't one. But there's sacred space wherever Christ is with his people. And the sacred space is safe because it's in the Savior. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Thank you for taking us down the road. Thank you that you're not allowing me to take my foot off the gas. Please, Father, don't allow me to take my foot off the gas unless it's time to stop and explain or recuperate or recover some things that need to be recovered. I'm just asking you that for 2017. I'm also asking that you will allow the gospel of your son to break out of all its traditional construals and all of its conventional entrapments and imprisonments may your gospel be truly unchained to the glory of your son to the strengthening and the mighty restoration of your church i pray for coming messages this coming message on friday 
at the funeral home in Tarentum, I pray that the right words of the Spirit, not of a man, will come to bring power and comfort. I pray for the message on New Year's Day, and I pray for Phil's message in on the 5th. I pray for all future messages from Pastor Messick preaches and when Pastor Brown preaches and when other pastors are called upon to preach. I pray that their message will have this mighty weaponry, that the teachers of the Sunday school will also make this gospel clear in its unchained, glorious way, that it will be manifested in the teen class, in the even the young people will begin to see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, shining. And we know that this will mean the defeat of the God of this age, whose entire intention is to veil this gospel. 